Well, we're picking up uh, again this evening uh, in our series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, last time, uh, we had a look at what Paul had been saying about Christian ministry. And it would have been easy uh, for Paul to have been incredibly uh, optimistic and upbeat about the way things had gone. And he'd planted churches, he'd uh, travelled, he'd raised money. His ministry, on many metrics, uh, was very successful. Uh, but he doesn't look back at all that's happened And remember and talk about just the good things. He doesn't dwell only on the good things, but he remembers also the challenges uh, that he had. Now, Paul uh, was in chains uh, and beaten, and we talked about uh, the trials that he'd suffered uh, in the past. Uh, And so Paul writes and he gives the church a warts and all picture uh, of his ministry. And he's not doing that to depress them um, and to depress us, but rather he does that so that the churches and us wouldn't lose heart uh, when they run into trials or into troubles or into difficulties. And last time, you may remember, we looked at the fact that we carry this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. Uh, Vessels are prone to getting chipped, cracked, and eventually completely broken. And Paul told them of the struggles in his ministry so that they wouldn't lose heart. And his encouragement uh, was for the church in Corinth to look forward toward the things that are unseen, because the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's what we're going to do this evening. I want us to ponder a question. And it's this. What is the perspective that you have for your life? What is the perspective for your life? When you look at your life as a Christian, what is it that keeps you going? And we're going to look at that under a couple of headings. Firstly, uh, the eternal perspective, verses uh, 1 through 5, and then the direction now, verses 6 through 9. So, the eternal perspective. Uh, Paul's been telling us about uh, the fragile vessels that the gospel is housed in. And he now turns to tell us of why we keep going, of why we persevere. And it's a good question for us, isn't it? Is, well, why, how, why do we persevere? What keeps us going as Christians? Now, we're all involved in ministry of some form or another, and it might be in a structured way, uh, on a rotor, uh, thank you tech team, uh, or it might be in an informal way, uh, speaking to people about Jesus at the school gate, uh, offering to pray for colleagues at work, or teaching our children in the home. In some way or another, we're all involved in gospel ministry. Now, we know, like Paul, that it's not always easy. And when we face a setback, it can be really hard when people openly ridicule or attempt to undermine your ministry. Uh, When despite all the prayer and the preparation, uh, you see little or no growth in the desire of people to come to the Lord. When people seem to just want to consume whatever it is that the church offers and has no desire apparently to help uh, or to understand why we do the things that we do. People turn away. When we can see no growth, we get tired, we get discouraged. It's when our jars of clay just don't seem to be enough. And on top of that is the truth that we are being drawn every day towards physical death. I worked uh, in a research lab for a, for a time at a big drugs company. Uh, and every day I'd come in and one of the lab leaders Uh, would sit down for our morning cup of tea and he'd say, here we are, another day closer to death. And that would be his greeting every day. 
Uh, I, I should have asked him what kept him going with a mindset like that. But what keeps us going? Uh, it's a question uh, also for our non-believing friends, isn't it? It's not just a question for Christians. But the philosophy of the world sees death as a huge problem. Uh, that question uh, of how to make sense of our lives in the light of, our, uh, of the fact that death is coming, uh, it's a really thorny question. Uh, this chap, Dr. Jarrett, uh, wrote a book called 33 Meditations on Death. Uh, as a non-believer, he mulled over the lives of some of the patients that he'd known at the time of their death. Uh, Early in his reflections, he uh, ponders the fragility of life and how it can so easily slip away. And he writes, uh, with each failed resuscitation, a little bit of you dies, yet something grows. The understanding that life, unfair and fickle, is also precious and must never be taken for granted. That's where he starts. But by Reflection 24, he says that uh, all those people who don't believe in God... He says, well, it's true for all the people who don't believe in God. He says that the body just, well, it just rots in the ground and the worms eat it uh, and then you're gone. And he says that when your last grandchild uh, dies, there'll probably be no one on the planet who has ever met you. And he says, you'll be forgotten. And as soon as he writes those words, he, he says this, I, for one, take some comfort from this. I take comfort from that, he writes. I mean, there is no comfort in believing that your life now is utterly meaningless uh, and that nothing that you have ever said or done will have any lasting value. It's bleak beyond words. But that's the modern day philosophy. That's what's being promoted by the culture. And that's what we, our children uh, and our grandchildren swim in. And if you spend even a little bit of time thinking about the implications of it, it will breed a sense of hopelessness in your heart. And that's the modern philosophy, that when we die, we rot, and there's nothing. And that uncertainty, I think, is part of the reason our young people are so insecure and so unsettled. Because they, and we, we need a hope through and past death, beyond it. And the gospel is the complete antithesis of the world's thinking. The gospel is the hope that we all need. It tells us that death isn't the end. The gospel tells us that that there is eternal significance to our lives. There is something that death cannot take away. And that's what Paul's pointing to in our reading this evening. Uh, Take a look with me uh, at verse 1. He writes this. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Uh, Paul speaking directly into the question of what happens when we die. Uh, The reference to our earthly home refers to our bodies. And what Paul calls destruction of that earthly home is death. And Paul says that there is something else that comes Now, the church in Corinth had been persuaded that the spirit was good and that the soul was what really mattered. The body didn't really count for much. And Paul dealt with a lot of the issues that came out of that in his first letter to the Corinthians. That the body was insignificant, the Corinthian church believed, and that God didn't much care for it. The implication was that after death, we'd just be spirits floating around, disembodied. But Paul says, no, that's not right. 
So what does happen? Uh, To help us grasp this, uh, Paul compares the body we have now to the one that we'll have after death. That there is, he tells us, a bodily and physical resurrection after death. And the comparison Paul uses is between an earthly tent and a building from God. The promise is, for all who trust in the Lord Jesus, all of us who have laboured and faced hardships as we've lived for the Lord, that come what may, through death, there is a house of God's own design that is assuredly ours. Our earthly dwelling is likened to a tent, flimsy and a collapsible structure. Whereas what awaits us is a building, sturdy, durable, and I hope comfortable. Uh, It's like comparing a small tent to a large building. And do you also see that the the house is of heavenly origin? Uh, It's from God. It's not made by human hands. And as a result, it's eternal. It will never be destroyed, unlike the earthly home, which will see death, or as Paul says here, destruction. But Paul goes on at the end of verse 4, and he says this. Take a look with me. And he writes, But to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Uh, This is a great image that Paul uses, that, that the heavenly dwelling that God has prepared for us will be like mortality being swallowed up by life. Uh, It's the language of an outer garment being placed over us, that this house will swallow us up. And actually the the word that Paul uses is the same word that Jonah uses in the description of him being swallowed up by the fish. Octopus energy. Uh, is a power supply company. Uh, it does a lot of work on heating efficiency by testing things in a lab. And their lab is a completely constructed, functioning house, a detached house. And that house, you can see, has been completely swallowed up by another building, a bigger building still. And the tent that we have now is going to be swallowed up by something bigger, better, and more glorious, like an overcoat that falls snugly on your shoulders and at the same time engulfs you, swallows you up, covers you. What is that? It's our resurrection body that Paul's speaking about. When the tent, the body that our souls now inhabit, is destroyed, when it dies, the promise is that there will be a resurrection body, a building from God. As soon as the earthly tent is taken down, We are recipients of a building from God. Now, the danger is that when we start to think about resurrection bodies, the starting point for our thinking is where we are at the moment. We tend to think uh, of uh, all eternity being us as we are now, Uh, perhaps with a little ready brick glow and our clothes completely washed in daz at 70 degrees, so brilliantly white. But basically, just us. Maybe a bit slimmer and a bit taller, but essentially just us. But I think we've got to think much, much bigger. Uh, I just wanted you to listen to a couple of modern-day theologians, N.T. Wright uh, and also uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, in Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, uh, where he just ponders... Um, 
what the new resurrection body will be like. He kind of compares uh, uh, the resurrection body as being solid and glorious as a ghost is ethereal and nothing. And he writes this. What Paul is asking us to imagine is that there will be a new mode of physicality which stands in relation to our present body as our present body does to a ghost. It will be as much more real, more firmed up, more bodily than our present body as our present body is more substantial, more touchable than a disembodied spirit. We sometimes speak of someone who's been very ill as being a shadow of their former selves. If Paul is right, a Christian in the present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. The self they will be when their body, which God has waiting, sorry, the self that they will be when the body which God has waiting in his heavenly storeroom is brought out, already made to measure and put over the present one. So this idea that it's, we will be so solid, so sturdy, so glorious in our resurrection body compared to uh, the ghostly existence that we have now. That's how striking the difference will be. C.S. Lewis, uh, he writes, comparing uh, us, he says, uh, of, he said, if you could imagine, if you could see your resurrection body, your resurrection self, or anybody else's resurrection body, he says, uh, he writes, uh, that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to today will one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's saying, wow, your resurrection body is so amazing that if you were to see it today, that you just think, and you would fall to your knees. Now, we do have to be careful. Uh, we can't go much further than the biblical warrant. We're not told exactly what our resurrection bodies are like, but we have a God who is so creative, so lavish, uh, so spectacular in the things that he creates. It's hard to believe that our resurrection bodies won't be anything other than glorious, breathtaking. So, what can we say? Uh, let's see three things. Uh, firstly, uh, that God gives us this burning conviction that those who live for Christ and are being conformed to his likeness in this life will, without doubt, be glorified with him. This idea of being swallowed up by life. Secondly, that death does not shatter the union that we have with Christ, not even for a moment. Rather, death is simply the gateway to that full union with Christ, to that eternal union with Christ. And thirdly, it reveals the goodness of God because we receive from him that eternal, that glorious, that perfect, incorruptible, finished building. How can we be sure? How can we be sure this is ours? Take a look at uh, verse 5. He writes, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God's promise that all who believe and trust in Jesus for their salvation will have the Holy Spirit come and dwell in their hearts. That God himself is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Which is an amazing thing, isn't it? The one who brooded over all of creation as it was spoken into being, he dwells in you 
and he dwells in me. The one who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and dwells in me. Uh, do, Do you ever stop just to ponder that, to think about that, to marvel at that? Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit, he dwells in us, it's a a promise that guarantees our resurrection to this new resurrection body. The Spirit indwelling, he, he speaks to us through his word, through God's word, to remind us, to tell us of the truths of God's promises. That as those promises become more and more real in our minds and in our hearts, that there will be a gradual transformation in our hearts. And it will be a transformation that's driven by joy and it's driven by love. Uh, It's an overflow of love and joy. As the Spirit makes clear to us the ugly reality of our rebellion against God. And then at the very same time holds up the undeniable truth of God's eternal, unflinching and unrelenting love for sinners. For us, sinners saved by grace. Enemies of God made his children. And all this a free gift to anyone who would turn and accept Christ as Lord and Saviour. And as this tent made of hands, uh, by hands, starts to crease, starts to crumble, tear, perish and fail. As this outward body fails, the Holy Spirit's at work inside. We who believe are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. There's a renewal happening inside our hearts outwardly crumbling but inwardly being renewed Uh, if you like the aroma of the resurrection uh, that hope fills our nostrils and it electrifies us Uh, but this renewal isn't completed here in this tent but rather it awaits us it awaits us in that resurrection body And obviously all of this doesn't mean that our life now is going to be easy. Paul's been speaking about the trials that he's had to bear. And we spoke about that last time. But what Paul wants us to see is that in this Christian life, we live with suffering. We live by faith in the light of the eternal promises. And in all of this outward suffering, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit sustained Paul. The Holy Spirit makes true and bright the promises of God in the heart and mind of the believer. And that joy, that joy in Paul's heart sustained him. And it will sustain us. So the Spirit guarantees the certainty of our hope. And in verse 4, Paul tells us that while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Uh, the, the word Paul uses here isn't uh, to represent uh, despair or agony or mournful dejection. Uh, no, it's, it's a groaning that comes from hopeful longing. Uh, not a groan of hopeless futility, more a groan of, I can't wait for that day. I cannot wait for that day. And as we read Paul's letters, we see that Paul's whole life seems to be filled with resurrection hope. And I wonder if that's true for us. So what does that mean for today? Brings us to our second point. Uh, Let's take a look at uh, our next bit, verses 6 through 9, where we read this. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. 
We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home, in the body, or away from him. Now, Paul here talks about being at home in the body or away from the Lord. He's not talking uh, about a place where we are not with Christ or where Christ is absent. Uh, because he's already told us that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself with us. Christ is present with us, whether we are here in this earthly tent or in whether we are um, yeah, whether we, we are, he's with us, whether we're in this earthly tent, these jars of clay. For now we live, as he says, by faith, knowing that the Spirit guarantees us that eternal dwelling. And Paul tells us in verse 8 uh, that uh, he would prefer to be away from this tent made by hands and be at home with the Lord. That's where his eyes are fixed, because he knows that that's where he'll be face to face with Christ. There in his resurrection body. And so Paul says he makes it his goal to please him. But but, but why would pleasing God be the obvious thing for Paul to want to do in the light of this? Because Paul knows that the gift of the resurrection body for all believers is a glorious gift freely received. But the reason it's free to Paul and to us and all those who believe is because it cost God the Son... Everything. God the Son lived in perfection with the Father and the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of time, clothed in all majesty and glory. Yet he put down the robes of heaven, that heavenly building if you like. He put it down and he picked up and clothed himself in human form, in a tent. He was born not in a palace but a barn, naked. He wasn't wrapped in royal clothes but in swaddling. In putting aside his majesty, Jesus became vulnerable to the elements, the vulnerability of the frailty of man, knowing what it is to be tired, hungry, and clothing himself in humanity, he became punchable. He could be spat at, betrayed by his best friends, and killable. And that's what humanity did. By nailing him to a Roman cross and jeering at the king of heaven. And why did he do this? To have us. To have you. And to have me. See Jesus left his heavenly dwelling. So that you and I could enter our heavenly dwelling. Jesus took off his royal robes. So that you and I could be clothed in our heavenly bodies. Jesus took on a body that would be broken, brutalized and killed so that we would have bodies that would be glorious, perfect and would never see death. But Jesus didn't remain dead. The father raised the son back to life by the power of the spirit. Jesus was resurrected in physical bodily form. And that's the proof that humanity needs. That's the proof of the resurrection And as Paul saw the beauty of what was done for him, as he meditated on that, as he prayed that hot in his heart, his heart was moved. And the spirit made those truths alive in his heart. And he longed to live to please God in response to all that God had done for him. And as we meditate on those same truths, that will shape our desires as well.
And in addition uh, to this desire to please the Lord, Paul tells us that there is a confidence that death isn't the end. We have confidence that Christ is with us now by his spirit and that Christ will be fully with us in our resurrection bodies after death. Paul tells us that while we're in our earthly bodies, we are not face to face with Christ. We do have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have tasted, haven't we, the life of the age to come, the eternal life. And we are seeing in our own lives the fruits of uh, the Holy Spirit's work, sanctifying us. But, but we are, for the moment, away from the Lord. And so, for now, we live by faith. We're confident of God's presence because he dwells with us now before death. And we're also confident that death isn't the end because of the resurrection of Christ. We too can say that we will be with the Lord. That there is a resurrection body for each one of us. And that means that we can live this life now with confidence. As hard as ministry is, as hard as life as a Christian is, we know that the best is yet to come. Because we'll be face to face with Christ in their new heavens and their new earth in our resurrection bodies. Now that doesn't mean that uh, for the here and now that we shouldn't, that we sorry that we should have little regard for the body. We should care for it. We should look after it. But there needs to be a balance because this is the body through which we serve the Lord. But we don't dedicate our lives and give them over wholly and exclusively in the pursuit of physical health. We don't give ourselves over completely and wholly to fighting back the effects of age on our bodies through aesthetic procedures or treatment. There needs to be a balance. Now I wonder if you're here this evening uh, and your body is broken, uh, diseased, or increasingly, increasingly frail. Uh, do you have Christian friends like that? We heard from Helen earlier. Now, if that's you, the hope of the resurrection and what that means in terms of a resurrection body is what you need. It's what we all need. Uh, it will allow us to be joyful even in times of real hardship. It means we won't lose heart and we won't despair. Because through death, for the Christian believer, our body will be enveloped by the resurrection body that's glorious, eternal, incorruptible and complete. Do you believe that? Is that a lived reality for you? The more of that that we can see, the more that we will allow those promises to settle in our hearts, the more strength that we will have to journey through the trials that come with frailty. Let me close with uh, one example of what this looks like. Uh, this is me uh, at dinner with James. Uh, James and I have known one another for about 30-something years. Uh, we train together uh, as chartered accountants. Uh, he's tall, uh, used to have dark hair. He's uh, handsome, he's athletic. He's an incredibly godly man, married to Helen, with two children of university age. Lovely, lovely man. Uh, after a skiing holiday in spring of this year, he came back 
uh, and had his regular annual um, medical exams with Bupa. Uh, and he mentioned, almost as a throwaway remark at the end of his exam, after everything had been ticked away, slight bit of um, uh, strength loss between thumb and forefinger. So that was in April. Two months later, they came back and they told him that he has motor neuron disease. He has under two years to live. In those two years, the disease will slowly and inexorably rob him of his capacity to move, his speech, and it will rob him of his dignity. And over dinner, we chatted about his condition and what that meant. There was not a jot of anger, of bitterness, or confusion in his mind. He accepted that the Lord had asked him to travel on this road. It's a difficult journey for him and his family. But he knows what Christ has done for him. And so he's willing to journey that road for Jesus. Now we were at dinner there with a friend who isn't a believer. And he just could not believe or understand why James was able to be so strong. I love this. James lent in and said... I have a resurrection body awaiting me. This disease is just bringing me to that glorious day with Christ in my resurrection body sooner than I expected. Uh, In a text exchange I had with him this week, uh, he told me of how he's getting, it's more more difficult physically. And he said, uh, my walking is now not so good, but roll on for my new body being prepared for me this isn't James putting on a brave face this is James having meditated on what God has promised through his word and by his spirit and he's done that and it's a lived reality for him he has great certainty in his resurrection body He has great confidence to travel the road that the Lord's called him to travel along. He can face that trial. And it's a strength that's available to each one of us. If we will but just meditate on the truths of our resurrection hope. I wonder, is that resurrection hope burning as brightly in your heart as it is in James's? So please, meditate on the resurrection so that our lives might have an eternal perspective and then allow that eternal perspective to give you confidence and courage today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much uh, for the glorious truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and what that means for us. Thank you that by your spirit you have guaranteed our resurrection bodies. Help us to groan with great longing for that day when we are clothed with a new building by you now Father I pray that as we meditate and reflect on those truths 
uh, might they impact the way that we see the trials and the challenges that we face today? Might they be small in comparison to the glory that awaits? So be at work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.